0: People can do amazing things, walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone.
1: Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was
0: a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen.
1: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>
2: Hello
3: and welcome to The Naked Scientists. with me Ginny Smith and with Kate Lamble. Hi Kate. Hello and this week we unlock the secrets of how dolphins communicate, the nutrition
4: that's helping athletes outperform past generations and Hawkeye. Is it a revolution in sport or a step too far?
3: If you'd like to get in touch with us email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook.
5: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk.
4: Later on in the show, we'll be taking a closer look at sports science to find out how athletes are managing to outperform past generations. But first, it's time to take a look at what's been making the science headlines. And Ginny, I gather you've been putting on your dancing shoes this week.
3: Yes so this is a study that suggests that marking through a dance can actually be more beneficial than doing it properly in a rehearsal. So marking something that most dancers will be familiar with when you're rehearsing a routine you don't always dance it properly like you would on stage because that would use lots of energy and if you're doing it lots and lots of times you just don't have enough energy for that. So sometimes you just sort of walk through the steps you might not leave the floor if there are meant to be jumps and even make hand movements in place of difficult steps like turns. But a new study, Warburton and colleagues at the University of California, suggests there might be something more going on here than just energy conservation. So they asked some expert ballet dancers to learn two routines, and each dancer practised one of them entirely full out, and one of them partly through marking, and obviously they counterbalanced the routines. So as well as learning the steps, the dancers had to apply a quality to each movement. So they had to make some things gliding and some things floating and that sort of thing. And then they performed their routines and they were assessed for how well they did. And they found that the dancers did better in the routines that they would marked than the ones they'd rehearsed full out. Now that's quite surprising because you'd think ones that you'd rehearsed more like you'd perform them, you'd do better in. And it suggests that the marking must do something other than conserving energy. So the researchers argue it's due to the dancer's cognitive workload. So if you're dancing routine full out, you have to concentrate on your movement, on your posture, on your footwork, your balance. There's lots of stuff going on that you have to think about. And they argue that because of that, the dancer's brains are overloaded and they don't commit the qualities they're trying to learn as effectively to their memories. And this has implications for a field known as embodied cognition, So this is the idea that we use evolutionarily older brain systems to help us with complicated cognitive activities. So we might make physical movements like counting on our fingers as we're adding up or talking to ourselves to remember phone numbers. And the field believes that this externalising of your cognitive process helps you form memories, but that's the opposite of what's seen here. So it might actually be that when the activity isn't particularly physically demanding, the physical representation helps. But when it's something very difficult like ballet dancing, that overloads the brain. So marking through a dance rather than dancing it properly relieves that cognitive load and allows you to commit the steps to memory better.
4: That's fascinating. We're talking about sport a little bit later on the show. Is this like when cyclists walk through a race and they visualise certain corners in order to get the best one?
3: It could be quite similar. There have been some studies on just visualising things which show some of this effect, possibly a bit less than marking but it's definitely the same idea. You can think more about tactics I suppose when you're not actually concentrating on staying upright on a bike. That's amazing. Well this week I've been looking instead at bedtime a far less active
4: activity and we all know that not enough sleep is quite bad for us particularly at a young age because when we sleep we consolidate everything that we've learned that day and we make ourselves ready to learn again the next day it also stops us functioning as well the next day if we haven't had enough sleep because you feel a little bit hung over so scientists were wondering does our bedtime when we're young affect how well we learn and how good we are at certain cognitive tests like reading or maths so a team led by Yvonne Kelly at University College London looked into this and they took the Millennium Cohort Study, which is a huge amount of data from over 11,000 infants in the UK that were followed from nine months to seven years of age. And what they found is that there's a significant correlation at age seven for girls which had the regularity of their bedtime and their cognitive test scores. There's also a cumulative difference, so those that had a really regular bedtime from those younger ages, from three onwards... Their cognitive tests actually get worse as they get older, but there's no significant difference for boys.
3: That's really interesting. So you say it's the irregularity of bedtime, so it doesn't matter whether bedtime's early or late as long as it's regular? Pretty much.
4: I mean, they did find certain trends, like those without regulation and those with later bedtimes came from socially disadvantaged backgrounds and also had different unfavourable routines, like maybe they didn't eat breakfast or they watched a lot of TV. But it's more about the regularity of the routine than the exact time that you go to bed.
3: Well, I certainly know that if I don't go to bed on time, I don't function very well the next day. Thanks, Kate. We'll have some more news in a moment, but first, this Sunday sees the start of the 19th World Transplant Games in Durban, South Africa. The Games offer the opportunity for people who've undergone a transplant to compete in a variety of competitive sports at the highest level. Here's this week's quick-fire science on organ transplantation with Priya Crosby and Claudia F. Statham.
2: 1,000 people die in the UK every year waiting for a transplant. The first organ transplant was a thyroid transplant carried out by Theodore Kocher in 1883. Although some organs can be donated by living donors, most organs are only suitable for donation after the death of the donor. The first successful deceased donor transplant was a kidney transplant between identical twins in 1954. A single organ donor can save or improve the lives of up to 50 recipients. Between April 2011 and March 2012, 3,960 transplants were completed in the UK, with organs from 2,143 to 143 donors. Neither medical condition nor age are necessarily barriers to organ donation. There is no cut-off age for donation, and very few medical conditions automatically disqualify you from donating your organs. On average, a patient in the UK will have to wait just over three years for a kidney transplant. of Brits say they're in favour of organ transplant, but only around 31% are actually signed up on the organ donor register. The World Transplant Games, which start this week, is an international sporting event in which all participants have received an organ transplant. Sports range from swimming and athletics to badminton and lawn bowls. The Games first took place in Portsmouth, England, in 1978. It now takes place every two years at locations around the world. The current World Transplant Games record for the 100m sprint stands at 11.16 seconds, just 1.58 seconds slower than Usain Bolt's world record time.
3: That was Claudia F. Stathieu and Priya Crosby. Now, we all
4: find ourselves having a chat to our cats and dogs at home sometimes, but they don't normally talk back. This week, however, a paper in PNAS looks at communications between dolphins that suggests that they use learned names to address one another. We're joined now by Vincent Yannick from the University of St Andrews. So, Vincent, what have you discovered?
6: We've studied signature whistles of bottomless dolphins for a while now, and these are very unusual signals in that every animal develops its own specific sound early in life and then uses that to broadcast where it is and who it is. And these sounds also are occasionally copied by other dolphins. And when we first found that, uh, we thought that this might be a kind of labeling system or as has been discussed as a kind of naming system perhaps. And in subsequent studies, we looked at who copies who, and it turned out that it's mainly animals that are very close to each other, like mothers and calves or also close associates. And in this new study now, we put this to a test by going out into the wild and playing back signature whistles to animals here off the east coast of Scotland. What we really wanted to do was to find out whether we can address one animal just with a copy of its signature whistle. So for that to be the case, we had treatment calls, which were the signature whistles of animals, but also other whistles from their repertoire and signature whistles from other animals. And the result of the study was that the animals really only responded when we copied their own signature whistle, but did not to all the control sounds.
4: And you sent us a few of those signature whistles over. We'll have a listen to those now. Those two whistles are obviously very different. How do we know that those are signature whistles as opposed to any other sort of random collection of clicks?
6: This is an interesting question because, indeed, when you have an animal in captivity, for example, and you can isolate it from the group, then the signature whistle is the most common whistle that the animal makes. It is producing it almost constantly. Now, in the wild, this is a little trickier. We do know that about half of the whistles they produce are signatures, but the other half are other kinds of whistles. Now, the way we found out what the signatures were in these wild animals here was using a study that we published earlier this year showing that you can find out what signature whistles are by looking at the specific temporal patterns of whistles. So if dolphins repeat whistles then the interval between these whistles for signature whistles have very specific values. And you can look for those and you can identify then which whistles are signature whistles and which ones are not.
4: You mentioned that these whistles are learned by the animal when it's quite young. So does each dolphin create its own nickname in a way?
6: Yes. So one of the big differences we call those names to human names is that the animals develop them themselves. So they're not given to them. And the way it it happens, it is kind of a creative process in that the animal listens to other whistles in its environment and then maybe chooses one as a model, but then starts to change that whistle sufficiently so that it becomes a new signal. So the animals really do label themselves first in a way and then produce that whistle repeatedly when they are trying to contact the group. And only through this repetition do other members of the group, of course, learn that this new signal stands for a particular individual.
4: How do we know what these whistles are used for? Are they just being used to say hi and let other animals know that they're there? Or are they used as a warning, like we hear other animals sort of scream warnings, baboons tell other other baboons that leopards are near, for example?
6: These whistles really just label the identity of the animal, so there isn't any kind of additional information in the shape of the whistle. Now, there is, of course, additional information always in the voice of an animal, so of a human, when we communicate. So if an animal is afraid, for example, then subtle parameters change, and those can also be extracted from receivers, and they can recognize what state the animal is in. And so through that, the animal can also convey, for example, whether there is danger imminent. However, these signature whistles do not function in the same way as alarm calls, where they label particular predators, for example. These whistles really just kind of stand for the individual that's producing them. For other calls that the animals might have, there are food calls that we found as well, which kind of seem to be standing for food. But we need further research to see to what extent they really are labeled, rather than just a kind of excitement call where animals encounter large schools of fish.
4: Is this naming unique to dolphins?
6: The only other animal in which um, we find something kind of comparable, perhaps, apart from humans, are perhaps parrots. There's various studies on parrots that suggest that they may also have a signature call system that works in a similar way. But there's only very few studies so far, and this is one of the rare cases where we actually have more information about dolphins than we have about birds, even though birds as a group are studied much more extensively than dolphins.
4: Why does dolphin communication in particular fascinate us so much?
6: I think there's different reasons for this, this fascination. On the one hand, uh, people are fascinated with dolphins because they are beautiful animals and when you encounter them in the wild. The other fascination is the scientific one, which really comes more from the fact that these animals have these advanced cognitive skills, which really rival those of the non-human primates. And it is a puzzle that to find this in an animal that clearly evolved in a completely different environment from ours. So to have similarities in communication skills between humans and dolphins, like vocal learning, for example, or also in other skills like um, social memory and the cognition tasks is kind of a surprise in such a uniform environment. And what it really tells us, and one of the interesting aspects about this, is that probably a lot of these skills actually evolved primarily in social contexts rather than in perhaps a tool manufacturing or tool use context, which is one of the other possible origins of advanced cognition that we find in primates.
4: So you're suggesting that us understanding how dolphins communicate can understand how our own language evolved?
6: Yes, I think these comparative studies with animals that are quite far away from our own lineage are very useful in highlighting what could perhaps be common reasons for, for the evolution of complexity, in this case in particular in communication, but I think also beyond this in cognition in general. The fact that uh, dolphins don't have opposable thumbs, don't produce complex tools, is something that kind of hints at the more dominant role of social aspects.
4: What are the next steps in your work now that you understand the role of these signature whistles?
6: One of the interesting observations we've made is that if you follow a group of dolphins, every so often you hear signature whistles of animals that aren't present in the group. And one of the next questions really is whether these are attempts of the animals in the group to find these other individuals or whether they perhaps really use them as referential labels to exchange information about third parties. We're quite a long way away still to kind of make that discovery, I think, if it's there. But um, I think it's a very interesting question to see to what extent perhaps these learned signals could serve as truly referential signals, which could only be shown if we show that they are conveying information to a dolphin about another dolphin.
4: That was Vincent Yannick from the University of St Andrews in Scotland.
3: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Kate Lamble and with me, Ginny Smith.
4: Now we're joined by Philip Broadworth from Chemistry World magazine, who's got a story all about diagnosing the plague.
1: Yes, and diagnosing it faster than ever before. You may think that that's about 400 years too late, but actually the plague is still a a very important microbial infection in the third world, and they are precisely the people who don't have access to the kind of equipment and labs that you would need to properly diagnose it. So having some kind of dipstick-type test that would quickly identify the bacterium Yersinia pestis would be very useful.
3: So what are they doing now that they haven't been able to do before?
1: Well, what uh, Peter Seyberger and his team at the uh, Max Planck Institute of Colloids and Interfaces in Potsdam and Germany have done is actually create an antibody for a particular sugar that is unique to that bacterium now this is a fairly common thing to do you know you've got something that you want to identify you express an antibody but the sugars on the outside of the bacteria are often all very similar to each other different bacteria have quite similar sugars so finding one specific sugar that is unique to that bacterium is quite difficult you then have to make it and sugar synthesis is also very difficult but something that Professor Seeburger's group is very good at and then you need to use that antigen which you've made which would be the thing that the antibody binds to to create an antibody now that's done by injecting the sugar into some mice the mice produce an antibody which you can then harvest and turn into some kind of test
4: So you talked about this test being needed in the third world just how quick and importantly cheap I suppose is this new method?
1: Okay, well, it hasn't actually been converted into a device yet, but the idea is that it could be incorporated into something a little bit like a home pregnancy test where you would just dip the uh, end into some blood serum or something like that and it would identify immediately whether the bacterium is there.
4: We think of the plague as quite devastating and deadly disease just from history. If you're using this test, how easy is it to treat?
1: With modern antibiotics, it's actually relatively easy to treat. You do need a fairly strong dose of antibiotics, but uh, it's certainly very treatable. The problem at the moment is that the time it takes to get a proper diagnosis using these tests, certainly where the kit's not available in the developing world, can often be longer than the bacterium needs to actually kill the person that's got it. So a quicker test would certainly save lots of lives.
3: So a really important development then. Thanks to Philip Broadwith of Chemistry World magazine. Now, Kate, I hear you've got news about palm oil... Yeah, so an international group of scientists in Malaysia and America have worked out a full genome
4: map of the oil palm. Now, this is really important because palm oil, which comes from this, makes up 45% of edible vegetable oil worldwide. So if you pop down the supermarket, it's in everything. Bread, chocolate, cereal, margarine, pretty much everything. Now, the problem with this is that our increase in demand for palm oil means that a lot of countries are digging up their peat rainforest to make room for the crops. So experts are predicting that 98% of Indonesia Asia's peak rainforest will be gone as a result of this by 2022. So it's in our interest to increase the yield of the boil palm as much as we possibly can to limit the amount of space we need to grow it in. Now, this full genome map has actually unveiled one particular gene, which they've named Shell, which regulates how much oil we can get out of the oil palm fruit. Now this essentially correlates to the thickness of the shell around it. Now we know that there's a particular type of oil palm, which we call Temera, which has a very thin shell and so therefore more oil. And this Temera plant has one mutant version of this Shell gene and one normal version. Now, we've always known this, but currently it takes us six years to work out which one of those plants have the high yield in this Temera type or not. So this genetic test will allow us to sift through saplings a lot quicker, pick out the ones with only the high yields, and hopefully increase the yield by 30% and reduce the amount of rainforest that we're using up.
3: That sounds brilliant, but wouldn't we then just be making palm more profitable? So wouldn't people want to plant it even more? Well part of the problem is that at the moment if you're
4: a consumer who doesn't want to use something that's been being grown on rainforest land it doesn't actually tell you whether it contains palm oil or not it just says vegetable oil. Now that's going to change in a couple of times when EU regulations come in but at the moment if you're heading down the supermarket and you want to know the difference there's actually a website called the Rainforest Foundation UK and they've got lists of all the different products that are in most major supermarkets and they've ranked them by how much palm oil is in them so that's a really useful way to go in find out and think if you don't want to be buying stuff with palm oil in it how to judge which one to buy
3: brilliant so we can all try and eat more ethical chocolate always good you can find out more information including the references to the papers we've discussed on our website at thenakedscientist.com news
4: this is the naked scientist with Ginny Smith and with me Kate Marble. it's time for the mailbox now where we try and answer some of the questions that you've been sending in to us
3: Now last week's show was all about schizophrenia and John Berger from Canada wrote in to ask about his former sister-in-law who developed the disorder when she was in her early 20s. He wanted to know what snapped in her mind that caused such a quick and dramatic change in her behaviour. We put the question to our resident neuroscientist Hannah Critchlow.
7: Hi there John. So scientists think that the majority of cases of schizophrenia might be due to problems with how the brain is wired and the bare essentials of the brain circuits laid down very early on in development of that person. Then the symptoms of schizophrenia don't typically show themselves until the early 20s which is what was seen with your sister-in-law. So why is it that it's the early 20s that the symptoms manifest? Scientists think it's because at about 15 years all the way up to the mid-20s, at this stage there's something else happening in the brain and that's something called synaptic pruning. So if you imagine that your brain is full of leaves and twigs and branches and trees, these are the nerve cells connecting with each other using these twigs and these branches and these leaves, well they're pruned away Probably under hormonal direction, so as soon as you hit puberty, this pruning process takes place which, get, which removes any surplus connections in the brain. And by removing any of these surplus connections in the brain, you're unmasking any underlying circuitry problems, which may be why... Your sister-in-law developed the symptoms of schizophrenia in her early 20s, which is what most people see. Another observation that we see for women that have schizophrenia is that you get a, a peak of incidents of people that come and visit a psychiatrist with first Episodes, the first symptoms of psychosis about the time of the menopause and we think this might be because hormones so the dip in estrogen during the menopause is actually again affecting this synaptic pruning and these connections between brain cells and so therefore unmasking again these underlying neural circuit problems that were laid down in very early life for someone that has schizophrenia i hope that answered your question
4: That was Hannah Critchlow. Now, David Zucker also wrote in to ask us, what makes things sticky? He says, I've always wondered what makes materials like glue and tape sticky on a molecular level. What's going on chemically that causes my fingers to stick together when I have honey on them? Now, Philip, we were hoping you might have an answer for us on this one.
1: Well, David, that's a very good question. And basically, there are two kinds of things that you could think of when you're talking about stickiness. When you're talking about things like glue, sort of a superglue, there's often a chemical reaction going on. And when you're talking about things like honey, it's not a, an actual chemical reaction, but just interactions between the molecules. So, for example, superglue is made from something called methacrylate. And in the bottle, that's fine. But when it comes into contact with water, either in the air or on your fingers, then it starts a chemical reaction which bonds all of the molecules together into big, long chains, which is what sticks everything together. Then the chemical bonds hold everything together. Same for lots of other kinds of glue. But things like sugar and honey, which just feel kind of sticky, that's generally down to forces that are not actually chemical bonds, but interactions between molecules. So some of those would be hydrogen bonds, which are the same interactions as between water molecules, but a sugar has lots of sites that can hydrogen bond, which means that there's a more cooperative effect. It's like putting lots of hooks into a surface and then trying to pull on it. If you've only got one, it's relatively easy to pull away, but the more hooks you have all acting together, the more sticky something is. The other alternative to that is something called van der Waals forces, which are generally to do with the surface area, it's a charge interaction. And things like gecko's feet have exceptionally high surface area, which is what allows them to stick to glass, for example. But that's also the same forces that are in play when you look at things like post-it notes. They have a a material on the back which is in very small spheres, and when you press it down, that increases the surface area and allows it to stick to the paper. But it's not such a strong interaction that when you peel away the post-it note, it leaves the paper that you'd stuck it to intact.
3: So sugar is nature's Velcro. Thanks, Philip. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at chris at the naked tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook.
4: On to our main topic for the show this week now, and we'll be looking at how science has changed
3: sport. Britain has recently been celebrating its first men's singles champion in 77 years. But between those two victories, the game of tennis has been completely revolutionised not just due to the introduction of professional contracts and sponsorship but also because of technological advances in rackets and balls which allow players to hit record-breaking serves of up to 163 miles an hour. I caught up with Alison Cook from the sports engineering consultants Cook Associates
0: on a local tennis court to find out about the technology that's changed the game. So the first development you saw from the Dunlop wooden rackets was aluminium rackets, which aluminium is much lighter material which maintains a similar strength, and so therefore pe- the players found it lighter to play with and then easier to swing. But then what we then advanced through was, was composite materials where you have carbon fibre composites. And the, the essential property that those materials allowed you to have was what we call the swing weight So what
3: exactly is the swing weight? I guess if you're trying to swing a very heavy racket, you'll have to put a lot more
0: energy into just doing the swing and you don't get as much energy to the ball. Is that the idea? Perfect. You've got it in one shot. The best way to think of it is it's the way the weight or the mass is distributed along the length of the racket. And just like if you were carrying a frying pan full of lots of bacon and eggs or something, which was there was too much in there, you would feel that it was heavier. Similar with the tennis racket, if you put more weight into the head of the tennis racket, it will feel heavier to the tennis player. And so the way the weight is distributed along the racket makes a big difference to how they play the shot.
3: So other than weight, what kind of things have changed in tennis rackets? in the materials they're made of to help people get these really powerful,
0: fast serves that we're seeing nowadays. The other thing that's changed, which is important, is the head size. And of course, if you have a bigger head size, then you actually have got more strings in there, you've got a more ability to store the energy and to then return the energy into the ball. And and just to give you the numbers, in 1970 the rackethead head side was about 70 inches squared and now they're more like 105 inches squared. The Williams sisters are usually known for playing with one of the largest sizes of rackethead, head, 110 inches, which is what the men play with often, the biggest rackets. Even if you don't play tennis you might have heard of the term sweet spot Is that the area of the racket that you're aiming to hit the ball with? That's right, the place on the strings where the ball receives maximum energy transfer. The maximum power to the ball is all about energy transfer. So the ball is coming with a certain amount of energy towards the tennis player, it hits the strings, the energy is stored into the strings and into the ball and then the strings return the energy into the ball and then the ball flies off. So we've got a pair of rackets here that you've brought with you and they look pretty much
3: the same But there's something different about them. What's that?
0: Well, one of the things that affects the player's shots and the power of the player's shots is not only the racket material that it's made of, but also the type of string that's used. And all sorts of things will affect that. The length of the string that's used, the type of the string, the cross-section of the string, and the tension at which the racket is strung. So we've got these two rackets here, and they're the same racket designs, they're the same head size, but they have different strings in them. And if you listen to them, you will hear a different noise. So it sounds quite nice. It sounds a bit like a guitar, but the second one sounded a bit higher pitch to me. Why is that? The higher the note, the more tightly strung the racket is. Now, if it's strung more tightly, then you lose some power, but you gain control. Uh, The reason you lose power is because the strings are all about absorbing the energy, elastic potential energy. It's called just like a rubber band. You know, you store energy into the rubber and then it pings back. That's what the strings are doing. They're storing the energy of the ball into the racket and then they're returning it to the ball. So if you have a tightly strung racket, you get less power into the strings and then less power back into the ball, but you do gain control. So that first racket was strung with lower tension, and so there will be more power. So we've talked a bit about the rackets,
3: but what about balls? How have they changed, and how does that affect the game?
0: One of the things people will automatically notice when they open a new can of tennis balls is that it makes a really lovely hissing noise and that's because the balls are kept at pressure so that the behaviour of the ball is repeatable. And then when the balls are manufactured as well, they are pressurised, and so that's why you will notice that when you take a new ball out of a can, most of us will not be able to squash the ball. Okay, and you've got a tube of new balls here that we can have a look at.
3: Yes, I do. So what's the difference between these and, and some balls that have been used for a while?
0: Well, we were watching my kids playing earlier and they were playing with some training balls which we've been using for quite a while and they become very soft with time. And that's why when you're watching any Wimbledon match, you'll see that they have new balls every so often. So they change the balls every nine games. And that's because those players are hitting the ball so hard all the time. They knock the stuffing out of the ball, literally. And the pressure within the ball deteriorates and it becomes much softer. So when you first open a tube of balls like we've just done, it's very hard, it's pressurised inside. I'm trying to squash that
3: in my hand and it's, it's squashing very slightly, but I'm having to put quite a lot of effort in to get any sort of give at all. So we've got a training ball here which has been used for a while, and yeah, I can get quite a good dent in that really quite easily just by squishing it. So you can definitely feel the difference there.
0: But what kind of difference does that actually make to playing with them? So it's all about the energy transfer. So with the new balls, you will get far more energy transferred into the ball from the racket and the player than when they're soggy. Energy is always conserved. So when you deform the ball like that, you're actually absorbing energy into the ball. So some of the energy that should go into creating the speed of the ball actually goes into deforming the ball at Wimbledon they keep them at a certain temperature as well is that because of the same idea temperature will affect the pressure of the air inside the ball and so therefore if you have a different ambient temperature or a different outside temperature you'll have a different pressure of the ball and so the same parameters and design parameters the same effects that we talked about in terms of the softness of the ball will be affected by the temperature of the air inside and the pressure of the air inside That was Alison Cook from the Sports Engineering Consultants' Cook Associates.
3: So now we know there's a scientific reason for the call for new balls, please. It's not just
4: technology on the pitch that's helping athletes change their game. After a fantastic couple of years for sport in Britain, we've had a lot about the nutritional requirements of high-performance athletes, from Michael Phelps' 10,000-calories-a-day diet to criticisms that Chris Frew might not have been eating enough in the year preceding his Tour de France victory. But what effect does what we eat have on our physical performance? could changing our diet really make us run faster or jump higher? We're joined by Dr Phil Watson from the University of Loughborough. So, Phil, what do athletes need to watch in their diet?
8: It's a difficult question to answer because athletes are so diverse. The nutritional requirements of a 50-kilo gymnast, for instance, would be considerably different to the nutritional requirements of a 100-kilo heavyweight rower or Mo Farah running 10,000 metres so, there's certainly no one size fits all. There's certainly evidence that high level athletes' performance will be impacted by what they eat. But you're not going to make a mediocre athlete an Olympic champion by eating correctly. But certainly, you could lose that Olympic gold medal by eating poorly.
4: Is there anything in particular that will help most athletes perform on the day? What should you be eating just before your race?
8: Well, research over the past hundred years has supported the idea that carbohydrate is important to performance, certainly in the more prolonged events, so something like the Tour de France or a marathon or you know the ten thousand meters that um, I mentioned previously Carbohydrate we obtain that from variety of foods, things like pasta, rice, potato, and sugary type foods and carbohydrate 's important because it 's the primary fuel for exercise so Certainly the evidence suggests that carbohydrates are important. The other dietary component that's kind of persisted over the years, obviously dietary fads come and go and you see these fad diets, but the other staple of sports nutrition is fluid. We lose fluid as we exercise, particularly when we exercise in the heat. We sweat, we perspire, we lose fluid from our body, and it's important that we replace that.
4: As well as a dietary plan, professional athletes also often take supplements. Why do they do that?
8: Well, there's a number of reasons for that. The most apparent reason is to improve their performance. There's a little bit of evidence that some supplements do that. A substance called creatine, for instance, has consistently shown to improve strength and power in those sorts of athletes. Caffeine is another supplement that has consistently been shown to improve performance. There are a few um, new kids on the block, substances like beta alanine, beetroot juice, which is a bit of growing evidence now to support their use.
4: Talking about beetroot juice, one of our team members is a very keen row and she's been bringing in these beetroot juice supplement drinks that they've been giving out. Why particularly do we think that that might be helpful to athletes?
8: Beetroot's rich in dietary nitrate. Um, nitric oxide is very important to the body for a number of reasons. It regulates blood flow, and it's important in muscle metabolism as well. Um, Research over the past four or five years coming out of the University of Exeter has really shown that by ingesting beetroot in these beetroot juice shots that have become popular, you increase dietary nitrite, which is a product used to generate nitric oxide within the body, and it does certainly seem to improve performance.
4: Some of the supplements you mentioned earlier as well, like caffeine, are obviously also drugs. Where's the difference between the supplements that we take to help our performance and the supplements which we now consider in certain sports to be prohibited aids and that go beyond what we'd normally eat?
8: There's actually a very fine line. Caffeine, for instance, was on the World Anti-Doping Agency prohibited list up until 2004, and you were allowed a certain urinary level of caffeine Um, Above that, you would be banned for using too much. My PhD supervisor, Professor Ron Morn, used the adage that if it works, it's probably banned. And obviously, there are some exceptions. So caffeine and creatine are are two that have hung around and have persisted in, in terms of nutrition.
4: We hear a lot about athletes who are um, banned for doing illegal substances or substances that are prohibited in their sport. And some of them say, I didn't know it was in the supplement that I was taking. I didn't know it was within my diet. Why is that the case? Why are they so confused about what they're consuming?
8: It's an interesting one. And so the World Anti-Doping Agency rules are very explicit. There's strict liability applies. So if you test positive, you can't point the finger and say, I don't know. That doesn't stand up in court. But there has been a number of cases over the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years of athletes testing positive and going through that exact same scenario. They say, I didn't take anything, I'm innocent. And then a study conducted in Germany a few years ago now, almost 10 years ago, analyzed dietary supplements brought from all over the world and found that some of those supplements were actually contaminated with steroid pro-hormones, so precursors of anabolic steroids. And these substances weren't included on the label. So the authors of that particular study concluded that there's cross-contamination occurring and this contamination could lead to positive doping tests in athletes. And certainly some of our researchers demonstrated that very trace amounts of these pro-hormone substances added to a dietary supplement can cause an athlete to test positive. So perhaps there is something there.
3: When
4: you talk about precursors to steroids is that something that is actually a steroid or is that something that later gets turned into it somehow?
8: Yeah it's a substance that later gets metabolized into a steroid so some of these substances are made available as dietary supplements particularly to the bodybuilding industry to the guys who are trying to get massive and look good on the beach. There's actually very little evidence that they do enhance muscle growth but The bodybuilders like the idea that I'm going to take a steroid precursor and that will make me grow muscle faster. So these supplements are on the market. And yeah, there's some evidence that the companies that are making these types of supplements, there's some degree of cross-contamination occurring. And that's probably what's led to some of these positive doping cases.
4: By this point, sports nutrition has become a very exact science and we all hear about how sports nutrition is embedded into almost every professional sports team. Where can we go next? What's the next stage in us helping develop nutrition that can help our athletes?
8: I don't know if sports nutrition and sports science has been slightly slow to adopt other areas of science, but in the last perhaps 10 years, molecular biology has become a big explosion area within exercise physiology and sports nutrition So we're really starting to understand some of the molecular processes going on within the muscle, the signaling that tells the muscle to grow in a certain way. And that's being used by sports nutritionists now to look at the interaction between diet and training to try and maximize the training gains from a given bout of training. So something that's become popular in in the last couple of years, and some of your listeners may have heard of it, is the idea of train low, compete high. And that means you train with low carbohydrate availability, and then you compete with high carbohydrate availability. And that seems to be beneficial because training with low carbohydrate stimulates a greater adaptive process. So your body is under more stress during the training session, your body responds to that stress, and you seem to get greater training gains. Now, you can't undertake all your training sessions in this low carbohydrate situation because eventually you'll break down and it's difficult to maintain the intensity. So they'll perhaps do two sessions in one day, one session with high carbohydrate availability, which allows them to really push hard. And then one session with low carbohydrate availability, which puts this additional stress on the body and seems to enhance the adaptive process to trainings.
4: Fascinating stuff. Many thanks to Dr. Phil Watson from the University of Loughborough.
3: Advances in sport technology aren't just aiming to improve athletes' performance. Recently, we've seen the emergence of technologies designed to help officials enforce the rules of their particular sport. Probably the best known of these is Hawkeye. So I spoke to Luke Agus, Director of Tennis at Hawkeye Innovations Limited, to find out how the system works.
9: It's a camera-based system with the cameras located at the back of the arena. So it's a totally non-invasive system. There's nothing put inside the lines of the court or the tennis ball itself. It utilises some bespoke and advanced vision processing techniques to detect movement within the field of view of each of those cameras and then combines... What it believes to be a tennis ball from each of those field of views to give you a 3D position
3: relative to the court lines. So, Hawkeye's not just been used for tennis, it's used for cricket and it might be being brought in for football. But these sports have quite different balls, they're different colours, and in the case of football, it's quite a lot bigger. How does that affect the technology?
9: We're very fortunate in terms of the general colour and the size of a tennis ball stays very consistent from event to event. In the cricket, where the system was first used, depending on the match or the test or the tour, a different ball can be used in terms of the colour. A ball can discolour, especially if they start using the white ball. And although people at home believe that the Hawkeye is this very automated, no-human intervention sort of system, in order to make sure that the system is tracking optimally under all conditions, be it the ball has changed colour, a shadow has come across the tennis court or with all electrical equipment there'll be at some moment that something will need powering down and powering back up again so that's the reason why we stick up more cameras and there's some human intervention to make sure the system's working optimally throughout in the football the ball will change between your optimal conditions through to obviously we know that the use of the orange ball in, in snowy conditions equally we're very very used to the pattern as well as the color changing on the ball Between competitions, and that's something that we're given clear direction on and well in advance of those competitions what ball they're going to use. And we actually are given samples of that ball in order to fully test the system from a robustness and a reliability point of view to make sure the system's working optimally under all conditions.
3: So, with cricket, obviously, Hawkeye is used in leg before wicket calls where you're having to predict something that didn't actually happen because you're looking at whether. If the leg hadn't been there, the ball would have hit the wickets. So how do you go about predicting something like that that has so many variables?
9: The cameras that we use in cricket frame rate of those cameras is a lot greater than the tennis, primarily because of that reason. So we're trying to achieve as many frames as possible using ultra motion cameras running at three hundred and fifty frames per second. Obviously it's not as easy to validate and test the system for something that effectively didn't happen. But obviously, in a similar way to a predictive element within the tennis from a frame-by-frame point of view, the system will then forward predict the flight path of the ball.
3: You must have to take into account things like the texture of the surface and the direction of the wind. Is that all part of the software?
9: It is. We calculate the court pace in a tennis sense, the coefficient of restitution, coefficient of friction on the playing surfaces that we track upon. In the tennis sense, a lot of people say, oh, you're bored about the wind. We're not effectively predicting the ball flight within tennis. We're joining the dots together. You know, We're capturing the flight of the ball. And therefore, if there is a given lob or shot under windy conditions that does do a sort of boomerang, then we're just joining those dots together. So that is all taken into account. We are capturing the actual video footage rather than what the system believes. In a predictive element within the cricket, That is an unknown, obviously, in that short space of time between the ball bouncing, the ball contacting the player's pad and then passing the wicket. So in that space of time, for wind to have a significant influence on the ball is extremely, extremely unlikely. And obviously, the relative weight of a cricket ball, it's influenced by the wind that much less than a tennis ball.
3: So with football you're using it as a line technology so just to see whether a ball has passed the line and is a goal but is there any way you could use it for other things perhaps to see if a foul was really a foul or if it was just a tackle whether they actually touched the ball, that sort of thing?
9: As with all sports we kind of create the technology for our customers and at the moment goal line technology has been the only specification in terms of any form of video replay and we've created that technology and hopefully fixed an age old problem Saying that, we are very, very open to other suggestions if this has opened the door on using video to best officiate football, offsides being a clear one. And there are technologies that we have provided in other sports as well as the Olympic Games where we've taken in numerous video feeds from standard broadcast cameras, synchronised those cameras so that you can see what is happening in each of those field of views or in each of those cameras at an exact moment in time. So to give rugby as an example, they obviously go to the officials to see whether the tri-scorer or supposed tri-scorer's foot had touched the line prior to the ball contacting the floor. At the moment, they look at that on a camera-by-camera basis, and the technology that we're currently offering various sports is to be able to synchronise that footage and to be able to see the output of that all at the same time.
3: Thanks to Luke Agus from Hawkeye. Now Hawkeye claim that their system is accurate and reliable but science journalist Nick Fleming warns that definitive calls will always be an impossible goal. So Nick, Hawkeye seems like quite a good way of preventing arguments in sport. What is it that you think the problem is with the technology?
5: It can be used obviously to replace a human referee However, all I'm really saying is that if we do that, when you screen recreations using Hawkeye, I think there should be something on the screen to acknowledge that it's not a 100% representation of reality, that there is a level of uncertainty and there's always going to be some inaccuracy because it is just a recreation, a measurement. I think it would be very useful for there to be an acknowledgement of that on screen
3: so at the moment, we use human referees and that sort of thing. And of course, they're not going to be accurate. So Hawkeye is going to be an improvement on that. So why do we need to point out to people that it's not accurate?
5: Well, because as things stand, technology, these kinds are obviously playing a larger and larger role in, in our lives. And I think it's important that we have a, a mature relationship with some of these technologies. There is a danger that if, I mean, if you watch a Hawkeye, replay from tennis, for example, when I saw that a couple of years ago then when I was watching those, I would assume that that was an accurate representation of reality and I believe that that's what most people think, when in fact that's not the case, there's always going to be inaccuracy there. And I just think that it's important that we use technological tools in an adult way and we understand their limitations. Uh, we don't just bow down to them and assume that they are always going to be correct and accurate, and that, that we just acknowledge that there is an uncertainty there.
3: So how accurate would something have to be for you to accept that it was accurate? So Hawkeye claim that their tennis system can predict uh, up to 3.6 millimetres, which is tiny compared uh-huh. to a... A tennis ball is That's there right. really any difference well, there? Well,
5: well obviously I mean in terms of football the big controversy was in 2010 and the Frank Lampard uh, goal that was must have been uh, close to a meter over the line looking at the uh, video footage and obviously Hawkeye would have would have done better than the referee there and, and and would presumably in in 19 out of 20 other cases but it's a question of there's a danger as we go forward when, when we're going to be able to produce footage that looks like real video footage with a computer. And for political economic usages, there's a danger that people are going to end up being fooled by some of that footage. So when we have these representations, I think it's important that we know what is real footage and what isn't. Things are going to become more and more realistic. So we can all agree that we're going to use the technology and that 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 could be more accurate than the referee, but let's not pretend that it's 100% accurate.
3: I think the only problem with that is that as humans, we find it quite difficult to understand uncertainty. So if someone tells you that this is the answer, but we're not certain that it's the answer, people will tend to assume that that means that it's wrong. Could that not lead to meaning more arguments?
5: Well, I mean, this really leads on to my other point really, which is that in in a lot of scientific debates that are in the public eye, be that sort of nuclear power or genetic modification or climate change, the media is constantly trying to fit science into a yes-no equation. Science isn't about yes-nos, it's generally about probabilities. It's scientists saying we've got a model and we're 98% sure that this is going to happen. But this is constantly simplified, so I suppose the other argument is that if we can be a bit more open and and mature in the use of tools like Hawkeye, if we can say, look, this is going to be much better than a, a human referee, however, there is an uncertainty, perhaps that would help to spread a message amongst lots more people that in science there is uncertainty. We have to be able to cope with uncertainty. We, we shouldn't pretend it's not there. That's my concern. We're pretending that uncertainty isn't there. Let's not patronise people in that way. Let's let's be upfront with people.
3: So we can kind of use these sports as almost a training ground to help people understand uncertainty and Bigger questions as well,
5: absolutely, yeah,
3: and the most important thing when it comes down to it in sport is not actually that the call is correct one hundred percent of the time, but that it 's unbiased, so at least with these electronic judges they 're unlikely to have a leaning one way or another
5: I guess that 's the case, yes, but then I mean there are other people who who will oppose these technologies for for other reasons. I mean, a lot of the interest in sport is the is the drama, the controversy the the argument, the discussion in maybe in the pub afterwards. That's, that's another argument that some people make against the use of those technologies.
3: Thanks a lot to Nick Fleming.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and with me, Kate Lamble. Finally, Hannah opens wide to answer our question of the week. This week, we crunch into this question.
10: Hi, I'm Steve from Hampshire and I have a question about sweets. I was in the car one day with my daughter and we were playing the see how long you can keep a sweet in your mouth without chewing it game. I gave up after a minute and started chewing my sweet. I noticed that the sweet got stuck to my teeth as I was chewing and it got me thinking, what is worse for your teeth? Sucking the sweet for ages until it goes to nothing or crunching it straight away and having that sugary goo stuck in all the nooks and crannies of your teeth doing all the nasty stuff that sweets do.
7: So, suck or chew. Which one's best for your teeth? Cambridge University dentist Mike Williams, who's also a senior clinical teacher at Guy's Hospital London, wrote him with this.
10: OK, so when you eat foods that contain sugar, the bacteria in your mouth utilise this sugary substrate as their food and as a byproduct, they produce acid. It's this acid which causes your teeth to decay. The bacteria will go on producing acid for about 20 to 30 minutes after the sweet thing has gone. This is referred to as an acid attack, and during this period, the teeth are an environment where they might decay. They might not decay, but everything is in place that would allow that to happen. Thus, the frequency with which sweet things are eaten is important. If another sweet thing is eaten, say, 10 or 15 minutes later, there'll be another acid attack, and another, and another, and so on. Here, the acid attacks will merge into one big acid attack, and the teeth will certainly decay. So, when sucking the sweets slowly, it means that sugar is available for a longer period of time. The acid attack would be as long as the sweet was in your mouth, plus 20 to 30 minutes.
7: Thanks, Mike. And Richard Crosby, dentist in Norwich, agrees, adding this caveat.
8: The person who ekes their sweets out and sucks them for a long length of time is likely to be doing more damage than the person who crunches them up and gets rid of them in, in a short space of time. I think the only other thing to bear in mind is that crunching sweets could cause some physical damage rather than the bacterial damage from decay. So you might find that if you are crunching hard sweets and you've got compromised teeth, you might actually be chipping bits off your teeth as well.
7: So if you're eating sweet, sugary things, try to guzzle on them as quickly as possible. But be careful not to crack your teeth and try to clean your teeth directly after eating. Well, with that question brushed away, we develop onto this.
8: My name is Georgia and I'm five. And my question is, how do do grown-up cells... Know what they're going to be. How do brain cells know that they're going to be grown up
4: in, in my brain?
7: So, egg and sperm meet to form one zygotic cell, which goes on to give rise to 100 trillion cells of 200 distinctly different cell types, which work together to build our body and brain.
4: How does this
7: all happen?
4: Hannah Critchlow, that's it for this week. Thanks to all of our guests and to Ginny Smith for joining me. The producer was Dominic Ford. Next week, we'll have a show packed to the brim with question and answers for you as we have a proper sort through the mailbox. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust and the
1: EPSRC. I'm Kate Lamble, and thank you very much for listening.